I'm Rachel. And this is Mercury. Perfect. And this is Limetown. No, it's not. What is it? Armchair Apocrypha. Armchair Apocrypha, that's right. This is the podcast where armchair experts tell possibly true stories. Mm-hmm. And I have a long one today. Um, oh, good. I can't <laughs> tell how long mine is. You're about to find out. <laughs> My script is like eight pages, or six pages. Oh, shit. It's pretty long. I forgot to get my glass of wine and settle in. <laughs> There's still time if you want to grab your wine. Only if you'll share one with me. Absolutely. Okay. <laughs> Let's do that first. And we're back. <laughs> and we have wine. And we have wine. <laughs> Cheers. Cheers. Uh, how was your week? It was not too shabby. Yeah. It was okay. Work was better this week. It was. Good. Strangely enough. <laughs> How about you? It was pretty good. Um, I did uh, I did my orientation for substitute teaching. Um, still waiting on a certain somebody to do my reference for me. Oh my gosh, text her <laughs> ass right now. I did. Okay. Well, then be that annoying for, like, did you do it yet? Did you do it yet? That's what I would do. I'll even text her tomorrow morning when I'm up at, like, 5 yeah. and be like, did you do it yet? Um, but I should be able to start, like, tomorrow. Good. I just need to um, log in and start taking assignments. Yeah. Um, yeah, other than that, it's been pretty chill. We set up the little mini Christmas tree. And we did set up our, our <laughs> Christmas tree. And by we, I mean Rachel. Yeah. Um, Took 10 minutes. Mercury helped. Mm-hmm. And by helped, I mean uh, tried to eat some of the ornaments. Yeah. But it's good. <laughs> he didn't eat any. He didn't eat any. He has been jumping up on the counter. Yeah. Which is concerning. We're feeding you. Yeah. You're not starving. I promise. He does look actually bigger to me. Yeah. Which is a good sign. Are you, but getting, are you gaining weight? Hopefully not too fat. Gonna be seventy pounds in no time. He's like, I don't care. <laughs> um, if you uh, if you want to see pictures of Mercury, uh, you can um, check out my uh, my Instagram. Mm-hmm. I post um, I post pictures of him oh, basically yeah. every day. Sometimes Just every get other day. Uh, it's AWM Rights um, on Instagram, um, and there are just like tons of pictures of Mercury. Um, and he is the most cuddly dog that I've he ever met. He is. He wants hugs. He wants cuddles constantly. And he knows that we're talking about him, so he's staring at us right now. Yep. <laughs> uh, do you want to give him today's episode? I totally do. I'm cool. ready to hear this long story. So I foreshadowed this a little bit um, last episode uh, when I was talking about Anime Aquash um, mm-hmm. and the COINTEL program. Mm-hmm. Do you know what COINTELPRO is or was? I do not. Uh, It was the Counterintelligence Program. Um, It was started in 1956, designed to increase factionalism, cause disruption, and win defections inside the Communist Party USA. Okay. Um, The intended effect of FBI's uh, COINTELPRO was to expose, disrupt, misdirect, or otherwise neutralize groups that the FBI officials believed were quote-unquote subversive. Um, they did this by creating a negative public image for target groups by surveilling activists and then releasing negative personal information to the public 
they wanted to break down internal organization by creating conflicts, by having agents exacerbate racial tensions, or send anonymous letters to try to create conflicts. They would later do this with Martin Luther King. They would send him a suicide kit, telling him that they knew about his affairs and urging him to commit suicide before he could accept the Nobel Peace Prize. That's awful. It was very awful. Uh, they wanted to create dissension between groups by spreading rumors that other groups were stealing money. Uh, they wanted to restrict access to public resources by pressuring nonprofit organizations to cut off funding or material support. They wanted to restrict the ability to organize protest. They wanted to restrict the ability of individuals to participate in group acti activities using character assassinations, false arrests, and surveillance. Um, starting in October of 1956, Hoover reclassified the FBI's ongoing uh, surveillance of black leaders to include it under COINTELPRO with the justification that the movement had been infiltrated by communists. Mm. Communism. Hoover. Fucking Hoover. Uh, Hoover sent an open letter denouncing Dr. T.R.M. Howard, a civil rights leader, surgeon, and wealthy entrepreneur in Mississippi who had criticized FBI in action in solving the recent murders of George W. Lee and Emmett Till and other African-American leaders in the South. Um, when the Southern Christian Leadership Conference, an African-American civil rights organization, was founded in 1957, just a year later, the FBI began to monitor and target the group almost immediately, focusing particularly on Bayard Rustin, Stanley Levison, and who I already mentioned, Martin Luther, Martin Luther King Jr. After the 1963 March on Washington for Jobs and Freedom, Hoover singled out King as a major target for COINTELPRO. Under, under pressure from Hoover to focus on King, Sullivan wrote, In the light of King's powerful demogra uh, demagogic speech, we must mark him now, if we have not done so before, as the most dangerous Negro of the future and this nation from the standpoint of communism, the Negro, and national security. Ugh. Isn't history great? It Just is. Great. It's one of my favorite subjects in school. Uh, starting uh, that year, the FBI was systematically bugging King's home and his hotel rooms as they were now aware that King was growing in stature daily mm -hmm. as the most prominent leader in the civil rights movement. In the mid-1960s, King began to publicly criticize the Bureau for giving insufficient attention to the use of terrorism uh, by white supremacists. Hoover responded by publicly calling King the most notorious liar in the United States. In his 1991 memoir, Washington Post journalist Carl Rowan asserted that the FBI had sent at least one anonymous letter to King encouraging him to commit suicide. Historian Taylor Branch documents an anonymous November 21, 1964 suicide package sent by the FBI that contained the audio recordings which were obtained through tapping his phone, placing bugs throughout various hotel rooms over the past two years. The tape, which was prepared by FBI audio technician John Matter, documented the series of King's sexual indiscretions, combined with a letter telling him, there is only one way out for you. You better take it before your filthy, abnormal, fraudulent self is bared to the nation. King was subsequently informed that the audio would be released by the media if he did not acquiesce and commit suicide prior, prior to accepting his Nobel Peace Award. When King refused to satisfy their coercion uh, tactics, FBI Associate Director Cartha D., Deloche commenced a media campaign offering the surveillance transcript to various news organizations, including Newsweek and Newsday. Um, by 1969, FBI efforts to expose, quote-unquote, Martin Luther King Jr. had not slackened, even though King had been dead for a year. 
Bureau furnished ammunition for conservatives to attack King's memory and tried to block efforts to honor the slain leader. Mm-hmm. Even after he's dead. After he was dead. <clears throat> you can't like that MLK guy. Who? What's it? What did it stand for again? I can't remember. <laughs> During the same period, the program also targeted Malcolm X. Uh, while an FBI spokesman, uh, spokesman was denied, the FBI was directly involved in Malcolm's murder in 1965. It is documented that the Bureau worked to widen the rift between Malcolm and Elijah Muhammad through infiltration and the sparking of acrimonious debates within the organization. Rumor-mongering and other tactics designed to foster internal disputes, which ultimately led to Malcolm's assassination. The FBI heavily infiltrated Malcolm's Organization of Afro-American Unity in the final months of his life. The Pulitzer Prize-winning biography of Malcolm X by Manning Marable asserts that most of the men who plotted Malcolm's assassination were never apprehended and that the full extent of the FBI's involvement in his death cannot be known. After all of this, amidst the urban unrest of July to August 1967, the FBI began COINTELPRO Black Hate, which focused on... Hating black people? Black nationalism. <laughs> You're on the... Yeah, okay. you got this. Uh, it focused on black uh, nationalist groups, including the Student Nonviolent Coordinating Committee, the Revolutionary Action Movement, uh, which was RAM. Um, the Deacons of, uh, for Defense and Justice, Con- Congress of Racial Equality, which was CORE, and the Nation of Islam. Uh, one thing that I do want to note here is that there is a white supremacist group out in California right now which uses the same initials as RAM, uh, but it, start, it stands for the Rise Above Movement, not uh, the Revolutionary Action Movement. Mm. Um, so it's kind of funny that this white supremacist group is taking their name from a black uh, nationalist group, but you know. Yeah, I mean, yeah. <laughs> black Hate established the Ghetto Informant Program and instructed 23 FBI offices to quote unquote disrupt, misdirect, discredit, or otherwise neutralize the activities of black nationalist hate group uh, organizations. Um, a March 1968 memo stated that the program's goal was to prevent the coalition of militant black nationalist groups, to prevent the rise of a messiah who could unify the militant black nationalist movement, to pinpoint potential troublemakers and neutralize them before they exercise their potential for violence against authority, to prevent militant black nationalist groups and leaders from gaining respectability by discrediting them uh, to both the responsible community and to liberals who have vestiges of sympathy, and finally, to prevent long-range growth of militant black organizations, especially among youth. Uh, Dr. King was said to have potential to be the messiah figure should he abandon nonviolence and integrationism. Stokely Carmichael was noted to have the necessary charisma to be a real threat in this way, as he was portrayed as someone who espoused a much more militant vision of black power. While the FBI was particularly concerned with leaders and organizers, they did not limit their scope of target to the head of organizations and went after individuals such as writers uh, who were also listed among the targets of operation. This program coincided with a broader... broader, Blah. (laughs) You got this. Blah. This program coincided with a broader federal effort to prepare military responses for urban riots and began increased collaboration between the FBI, the CIA, the NSA, and the Department of Defense. Um, The CIA launched its own domestic espionage project in 1967 called Operation Chaos. 
the particular target of Operation Chaos was the Poor People's Campaign, a national effort organized by MLK and the SCLC to occupy Washington, D.C. The FBI monitored and disrupted the campaign on the national level while using targeted smear tactics locally to undermine support for the march. Black Panther Party was another targeted organization wherein the FBI collaborated to destroy the party from the inside out. FBI records show that COINTELPRO resources targeted groups and individuals that the FBI deemed subversive, including the Communist Party USA, anti-Vietnam War organizers, activists of the Civil Rights Movement, uh, Black Power Movement, um, feminist organizations, the American Indian Movement, who I talked about last episode, Mm -hmm. independence movements such as the Puerto Rican independence groups like the Young Lords, and a variety of organizations that were part of the broader New Left. On a March evening in 1971, eight anti-war protesters burglarized an FBI office in Medea, Pennsylvania, just outside Philadelphia, with astonishing ease. The group, ranging in age from 20 to 44 at the time of the break-in, had included three women and five men. Four of them were the parents of small children. Two were professors, two more worked in social services, and one was a graduate student. The others were recent college dropouts. All had deep roots in the anti-Vietnam War movement. The plan that they concocted was loosely modeled on draft board raids of the radical Catholic peace program uh, led by fathers Daniel and Philip Burgeon, um, though the group group that had done the burglarizing um, consisted of four Jews, three Protestants, and one Catholic. By burglarizing an FBI office, they hoped to find evidence of their worst fears that the government, through the FBI, was spying on Americans and suppressing their their cherished constitutional right to dissent. In a 2014 interview, John Raines said that while uh, returning returning from the burglary early in the morning, the group had stopped at a payphone, called a Reuters journalist, and delivered the following statement. On the night of March 8, 1971, the Citizens Commission to investigate the FBI removed files from the Medea, Pennsylvania office of the FBI. These files will now be studied to determine, one, the nature and extent of surveillance and intimidation carried on by, the, by this office of the FBI, particularly against groups and individuals working for a more just, humane, and peaceful society. Two, to determine how much of the FBI, FBI's efforts are spent on relatively minor crimes by the poor and the powerless against whom they can get a more glamorous conviction rate. Instead of investigating truly serious crimes by those with money and influence which cause great damage to the lives of many people, crimes such as war profiteering, monopolistic practices, institutional racism, organized crime, and the mass distribution of lethal drugs. Finally, three, the extent of illegal practices by the FBI, such as eavesdropping, entrapment, and the use of provocateurs and informers. As the study proceeds, the results obtained along with the FBI documents pertaining to them will be sent to people in public life who have demonstrated integrity, courage, and commitment to democratic values, which are necessary to effectively challenge the repressive policies of the FBI. As long as the United States government wages war against Indochina in defiance of the vast majority who want all troops and weapons withdrawn this year and extends the war and great suffering under the guise of reducing it, As long as great economic and political power remains concentrated in the hands of a small clique, not subject to democratic scrutiny and control, then repression, intimidation, and entrapment are to be expected. 
We do not believe that this destruction of democracy and democratic society results simply from evilness, egoism, or senality of some leaders. Rather, this destruction is the result of certain undemocratic social, economic, and political institutions. A few weeks of elementary surveillance had shown the group uh, the vulnerability of the FBI office. There were no cameras to elude, no alarms to disconnect. Because the building contained residential apartments, the group chose the night of the first Joe Frazier, Muhammad Ali heavyweight championship fight, an ideal distraction. Yeah. Ali himself was a co-intel pro-target due to his involvement with the Nation of Islam and yep. the anti-war movement. Yep. It turned out that the Pennsylvania office, like so many others across the country, had almost no physical protection. Security was largely symbolic, resting on the Bureau's carefully buffed reputation for efficiency and tracking down America's most wanted criminals. That's funny, right? It's hilarious. <laughs> Let's laugh together. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> that, uh, that fantasy ended with a break-in. Calling themselves a citizen, Citizens Commission to investigate the FBI, the burglars not only stole every file in the office, they also circulated the worst of them to journalists across the country. The reporter Betty Metzger received a batch in her mailbox at the Washington Post. Here is our badass. 20 minutes into the recording. Um, Betty? Betty Metzger. Though nothing she read even remotely compromised national security, there was plenty of material that was guaranteed to embarrass the FBI. Um, at the Post, the executive editor, Ben Bradley, insisted that the information be disclosed as a matter of journal- journalistic responsibility. A few days later, the piece... Stolen documents describe FBI surveillance activities appeared under Metzger's byline on page one. Metzger was the only recipient of these files to make the files public. In contrast, journalists at the New York Times, Los Angeles Times, uh, Senator George McGovern, and Representative Perrin Mitchell all returned the files to the FBI at the FBI's request. Holy shit! The Citizens Commission sent it to five people. Only one of them was had the courage to publish it. The most important stolen document was a routine rooting slip which contained the word COINTELPRO. The term meant nothing to the burglars, and for good reason. COINTELPRO was among the FBI's most carefully guarded secrets, a huge program of dirty tricks and illegal activities, uh, and it would take years for other journalists to piece together the scope of COINTELPRO. Are you going to tell us about that? Mm-hmm. Sorry. Just just a little bit. Um, Another episode. <laughs> this routine rooting slip was one of the biggest pieces of evidence in exposing COINTELPRO, and later that year, in 1971, the program was officially disbanded. Mm. What should have been one of the biggest scandals in American history was overshadowed by two other scandals at exactly the same time. Do you know what those were? In 71? 1971, March 1971. Um, Nixon? Watergate? Yeah. And... Oh, we already landed on the moon, and that's not really a scandal. Nixon and... Uh, nope, Vietnam's over. Nixon and something else. It <laughs> does have to do with Vietnam. It was oh. the Pentagon... The Pentagon Papers were published. Oh, okay, okay. New York Post. Um... And uh, the Pentagon Papers exposed, like, uh, military and uh, national defense um, information about the Vietnam War. Yeah. About, yeah. 
Five years after the burglary, the statute of limitations had ended, and with it, the FBI investigation into the Citizens Commission. They never found the people responsible. They never found out who did it? They, the FBI never found out who did it. The statute of limitations Shit, I ended, know. and the Citizens Commission got away with it. In so we her, don't know. In her 2014 uh, book, The Burglary, Metzger reveals how several years after the exposure and dissolution of COINTELPRO, she, she dined with two old acquaintances who told her, without prompting, of their role in the burglary. Shut up. With their aid, Metzger found and interviewed all but one of the other burglars. There was no legal danger. The statute of limitations on their crimes had run out decades before. Oh my god. Even if they came out today and said, I was, was part of the Citizens Commission. They can't be. They can't be. Tr- uh, yeah. They can't be punished. Statute of limitations. Statute of limitations. While Co-Intel Pro was officially terminated in April 1971, domestic espionage continued. Between 1972 and 1974, it is documented that the Bureau planted over 500 bugs without a warrant and opened over 2,000 pieces of personal mail. More recent targets of covert action included the American Indian Movement, which I already talked about, Earth First, committees in solidarity with the people of El Salvador. Uh, Documents released under the Freedom of Information Act show that the FBI tracked the late David Halberstam, a Pulitzer Prize-winning journalist and author, for more than two decades. Excuse me, what? Two decades. Counterterrorism guidelines implemented during the Reagan administration have been described as allowing a return to COINTELPRO tactics. Authors such as Ward Churchill, Rex Whaler, and Peter Mathiasen allege that the federal government intended to acquire uranium uranium deposits on the Lakota tribe uh, reservation land, and this, this motivated a larger government conspiracy against the American Indian movement on the Pine Ridge Reservation, which I talked about last week. Uh, other be- others believe that COINTELPRO, COINTELPRO continues and similar actions are being taken against modern-day activist groups. Caroline uh, Woydet says that with respect to Native Americans, COINTELPRO should be understood within the historical context in which Native Americans have been viewed and have uh, viewed the world themselves through the lens of conspiracy theory. Other authors argue that while some conspiracy theories related to COINTELPRO are unfounded, the issue of ongoing government surveillance and repression is real. FBI agent Richard G. Held is known to have increased FBI support for the Guardians of the Oglala Nation, uh, or Goon Squads, accused of the assault and murder of hundreds of AIM supporters. The Bureau refused to investigate the 64 cases of homicide directly linked to Goon, but committed its resources overwhelmingly to prosecute the American Indian Movement. Hmm. FBI documents obtained by the Partnership for Civil Justice Fund pursuant to a 2011 2011 Freedom of Information Act demand revealed that from its inception, the FBI treated the Occupy Movement as a potential criminal and terrorist threat, even though the agency acknowledges in documents that organizers explicitly called for peaceful protest and did not condone the use of violence at Occupy protests. In April 2018, which is this year, the Atlanta Black Star... My birthday! (laughs) That's what you're about to talk about, right? (laughs) Exactly. Everybody buy Rachel a great birthday uh, present. (laughs) Link in the description. Not really. But no. (laughs) (laughs) In April 2018, the Atlanta Black Star characterized the FBI as still engaging in COINTELPRO behavior by surveilling the Black Lives Matter movement. 
In 2014, the FBI tracked an activist of the movement using tactics which The Intercept found reminiscent of the rich American history of targeting black Americans, including the FBI's notorious COINTELPRO, uh, COINTELPRO program. Saying COINTELPRO program is... It sounds hard. Um, I don't envy you. Uh, this practice, along with the imprisonment of black activists for their views, is... Uh, excuse me. Uh, this practice, along with the imprisonment of black, acti- black activists and their views, has been associated with the new FBI designation of black identity extremists, which they unveiled just this year. Hmm. And that is the history of Pro. Okay, well, mine's going to sound stupid after that one, <laughs> but here we are. <laughs> that was a long one. That was a good one. I'm going to drink some wine. Yeah, you you must be parched after all that talking. <laughs> I've just been sipping mine, hoping that will make mine go a little, a little bit smoother. <laughs> I wanted to talk more about Betty Metzger, but I could not find much about her personal life. Because the FBI has shit it all down. It's obviously the FBI is suppressing her Wikipedia page. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Clearly. <laughs> all right, so you ready to... Go to a whole different world. I'm ready. So I just, I don't even know why I decided to do this person. Because I don't know anything, I didn't know anything about them. There's movies made about them, but I haven't seen any of it. And I'll just start with a quote that she says before I reveal who it is. Okay. Fashion is not something that exists in dresses only. Fashion is in the sky, in the street. Fashion has to do with ideas, the way we live, what is happening. Do you know who I... It's a fashion designer that the Devil Wars product is based off, right? I don't know. Okay. I don't know who she's based off of. Okay. Um, I do not know. I, today I'm going to talk about Coco Chanel. And do you know about her? I know that she was Nazi supporter. Don't do that! <laughs> <laughs> that was the twist I didn't see coming! And I will get to it! <laughs> Sorry, everybody. I just spoiled No, you're fine. <laughs> It's not that, I mean, that's like the whole second half. <laughs> but I just was like, well, I'm not a very fashionable person. Yeah. I wish I was. I wish I, like, really cared more about it. Yeah. And I do sometimes. I really like looking at dresses, like, once a year. Yeah. Um, I mean, fashionable, but I'm just, I could care less about shoes. Like, yeah. I don't get that at all. But, so I thought I would just look her up, because everyone always talks about her. There, I swear there's, like, five movies about her. So I'm yeah. like, okay. Gotta alert, gotta... Gotta read about her. She must be interesting. So, we're gonna go. We're gonna start from the beginning. <laughs> Let's start from the beginning and work up to the Nazis. Yep, that's exactly <laughs> what we're doing. Because <laughs> um, I was just like going through it, going through, and like what? Um, so, you probably aren't surprised, but Coco is not her actual name. What? Yeah, <laughs> her um, born. Name was Gabrielle Bonnier Chanel, born okay. in 1883 in France. Why didn't she keep Gabrielle? Uh, That's still like exotic enough. I know. I will get to. She didn't become get the nickname Coco until she was like 18 or 20. Okay. So she was Gabrielle for a while. Yeah. And there's all like three different theories about it, and I'll get to it, and I'll get to it, and how she changed her name to Coco because. Um. But it said that at birth, um, Coco Chanel's name was actually entered in the official registry as Chasnel, C-H-A-S-N-E-L. 
Um, her mom was too like sick to attend to the registration, and her father was registered as traveling with both the parents' absence. The infant's last name was misspelled, probably due to a clerical error. Great. <laughs> um, and this couple had five children um, uh, who survived, but and they lived in a crowded one-room lodging. How many children did they have that didn't survive? It didn't say. Okay. Um, it's a little morbid. Yeah. I should probably not talk, ask that question. It's fine. Uh, when Gabrielle, we'll call her Gabrielle now because that's still what she's being called, Yeah. was 12, her mom died of tuberculosis. Tuberculosis. At the age of 32, and her father um, just didn't feel like raising children. So his two sons went to go be farm laborers, and then he sent his three daughters, obviously want being... Um, Gabrielle to mm-hmm. the convent of the Abazine, which uh, ran an orphanage. So it was a it's a religious order it was a religious order. Religious order. Um, was founded to care for the poor and rejected, including running homes and abandoned orphan girls. Um, they say it was a stark, frugal life, demanding strict discipline because it was a Catholic place, obviously. Yeah. Um, Placement in the orphanage, they say. I like how some people try to look at the light side of things. May have been the best thing for her future because that's where she learned how to sew. It's <laughs> like, okay, but she could learn how to sew with a loving family as well. <laughs> she also could have learned how to do anything else. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> yep, yep. But when I read them, I'm like, really? It's the best thing for her. Okay. So at the age of 18, Gabrielle was too old to remain in an orphanage, so she went to live in a boarding house for Catholic girls. Um, having learned to sew for the six years while she was at the convent, she found employment, obviously, as a seamstress. Yeah. Um, when not sewing, she sang in a cabaret, and she actually made her stage be- debut singing at a cafe concert, a popular thing. Um, they said that she was a poisoise. I'm not really sure. A performer who entertained the crowd between the stars' turns. Okay. Um, and then the money earned was what they managed to accumulate when they passed plates around for, like, tips and offerings, basically. As you do. As one does. Um, so her name is still Gabrielle, but how did she get the nickname Coco? Uh-huh. Um, <laughs> well, it was around this time uh, when she spent her night singing in the cabaret. Often the song she sang was Who Has Seen Coco? She often liked to say the nickname was given to her by her father as well. And then other people believe Coco came from Coco Rico or Kiro Vu Coco. Um, it was allusion to uh, a French word for a kept woman. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I like the first one the best. Just, oh, who's seen Coco? And she just thought it was love the name. Yeah. So. It is very pleasant, like, aesthetically or sonically. Yeah. Um. While in France, she met a young French ex-calvary officer and textile heir, Etienne Balsan. Um, she was 23 at this time, and she became Balsan's mistress. Um, and for the next three years, she lived somewhere in one of his houses, an area well-known for its wooded equestrian paths and the hunting lifestyle, I guess. Um, as you do. As one does. So... In 1908, though, Chanel began an affair with one of his friends, a guy we're just going to call, uh, his name was Captain Arthur Edward Boy Capel. What was that? Captain Arthur Edward Capel, but he had the nickname Boy. Boy. 
Um, but to, we'll just call him uh, Edward. <laughs> in later years, Let's just call him boy. <laughs> Chanel reminisced of the time in her life. Two gentlemen were outbidding for my hot little body. <laughs> Capel, a wealthy member of the English upper class, um, basically financed her first shops. It, um, the bottle design for Chanel number no. five had two probable origins, in, or in one of the theories is that it's like the way his like flask looked looks like the rectangle bottle of Chanel five, okay. which is how she got the idea of it. Um, they would go on retreats and all this stuff together. Uh, their affair lasted nine fucking years. Wow! Even after Keppel married an English aristocrat. That's not an affair at that point. That's a relationship. Yeah, he did not completely break it off with Coco, and then in but he got married in 1918, and he died in a car crash in December of 1919. Wow! So that was out. Yeah. Did she cut she his was, brakes? Is that what happened? She did not. She was actually really upset about it. <laughs> um, like, she, she still thought fondly of him years and years later. Yeah. Um, in 1913, Chanel opened up her boutique in Duville, financed by Cable. This is obviously before he died. Uh, where she introduced deluxe casual clothing suitable for leisure and sport. This is... Um, so, basically, it's where she sold hats, jackets, sweaters... Um, and I like how it's pronounced. I don't know if I'm going to say it right. And the marine air, these sailor blouse, which I love. <laughs> um, Chanel had dedicated to the support of, or <laughs> the dedicated support of two family members, one of her sisters and one of her paternal aunts. And they were, they um, modeled her clothing. Uh, basically, they would parade through the town with her uh, looks, basically. Oh, yeah. Um, so she opened up another shop in 1915, uh, close to where uh, wealthy Spanish clients lived. Um, and it was really, she was doing really, really good. So after one year of operation, the business proved to be so lucrative that in 1916, Chanel was able to reimburse Capel his entire investment wow. into opening up her shop. One year, that's like unheard of. Yeah. Um, so, in 1918, everyone knows about this one, apparently, because it kept popping up. But in 1918, Chanel purchased building um, at 31 Rue Cambon in one of the most fashionable districts in Paris. Um, so, and that was in 1918. So, less than 10 years later, so by 1927, Chanel owned five properties on this famous street for fashion. Five properties, buildings numbered... 23 to 31. Wow. So, like, five of these buildings on this most fashionable street were, like, hers to sell her clothes. Um, I'm going to skip this part. Oh, wait. No, this will be interesting. No, it's not interesting. I'm going to skip it. <laughs> um, one of Chanel's longest enduring associations, I don't know what they mean by that. It sounded so vague was with a lady named Messia Sert. Um, she was a member of, like, the Bohemian elite wealthy people in Paris. Right. It is said that theirs was an immediate bond of kindred souls, and um, Messia was attracted to Chanel by her genius, lethal wit, sarcasm, and maniacal destructiveness, which intrigued and appalled everyone. Um, both women went to convent schools, and they both maintained... <laughs> Shared, uh, maintained shared interests and confidences. They also shared a really bad drug use problem. Mm. 
1935, Chanel had become a habitual drug user, injecting herself with morphine on a daily basis, a habit that she maintained to the end of her life. Oh, morphine. Yeah. Um, so... Morphine and cocaine. Mm-hmm. Nothing gets better. <laughs> By 1923, there's this lady that introduced Coco Chanel into the highest level, level British aristocracy. Um, this is where she met, like, Winston Churchill, aristocrats like the Duke of Westminster, Edward Prince of Wales. Like, she got to meet the cream of the crop. She um, was a number. Yep. Ah! I did something. Now, I get back to just doing it normal size. I oh, here no we idea. go. I got it. There, there we go. go. Um, so, and this is when, in 1923, she's 40 years old, and she's meeting all these people, and she was introduced to the Duke of Westminster, Hugh Richard Arthur Grosvenor. That's the name. Known to his, to his friends as Bender, so we're going to call him Bender. Uh, Bender and boy, yeah. Yeah. Uh, the Duke lavished Chanel with extravagant jewels, costly art, and a home in London's prestigious Mayfair district. His affair lasted with Chanel ten years. Again, that's not an affair. That's a relationship. It is an affair. So they say. The Duke, an outspoken anti-Semite, intensified Chanel's inherently um, anti-Semitic views towards the Jews. This will come up later. Hashtag spoiler, but not spoiler, apparently. <laughs> For sure. <laughs> but we will get into that soon. So, Chanel was huge at this point, and do you know why she became so famous for her style? Why? Okay, so I don't know if you knew. No. I didn't know either, but then when I saw them, I'm like, oh, yes, this does ring well. She is the one that introduced literally pants for a woman. Nice. Yes, so I'll give her that. She, what, like, they say that she invented women's suits. Women's suits didn't exist before then. Um, the famous Chanel suit has a military-inspired jacket, pad pockets, buttons that look like jewelry, she also apparently was the one that came up with the idea. I mean, it's kind of weird to say it came up with the idea because it seems so simple, but a little black dress. Because that wasn't really a thing, dresses yeah. like that. So, But everyone has a little black dress. I have a little black dress. Just to like slip on and if you need to go somewhere nice, I guess. Um, I do not have a little black dress. Well, you need to get a little black dress. You'll look very nice, I know. <laughs> I don't know if I have legs for it. <laughs> it's all about positive <laughs> attitude. <laughs> Going with confidence. Um, the Chanel Couture was a lucrative business enterprise, and by 1935, um, there were 4,000 employees. Nice. As the 1930s progressed, Chanel's place on the throne um, was threatened. I love this. The boyish look and the short skirts of the 1920s flopper seemed to disappear overnight. Wow. Which I didn't actually consider, but it's really true. Chanel's designs for film stars in Hollywood were not successful and had enhanced her reputation and had not enhanced her reputation as expected. More significantly, Chanel's star had been eclipsed by her premier rival, the designer Elsa Schiaparelli. Um, her innovative designs uh, were referenced like with surrealism and all this stuff. Um, she, totally. Yeah. Feeling that she was losing her avant-garde edge, Chanel collaborated with uh, Jean Cocteau on a theater piece for Oedipus Rex. Um, the costumes designs were mocked though and critically lambash. The wrapped in bandages, the actors looked like ambulant mummies or victims of some terrible accident. She uh, also was involved in a costume of a Russian ballet. The designs were made by Salvo Salvador Dali. Wow. 
However, due to the declaration of the war by Great Britain on September 3rd, 1939, the ballet was forced to leave London. They left the costumes in Europe and were remade according to Dolly's initial designs by Kerenska. So, then she never got credit for it. Mm. <laughs> All right. 1939. 1939. Beginning of World War II, Chanel closed her shops, maintaining her apartment situated above the Couture House. Um, maintaining her apartment situated above the Couture House at 31, Rue de Camden. Uh, she said that it was not her that it was not a time for fashion. As a result of her action, 4,000 female employees lost their jobs. Her biographer, Vaughn, suggests that Chanel used the outbreak of war as an opportunity to retaliate against those workers who, lobbying for higher wages and shorter work hours, had closed her business operation against her will during a general labor strike in France in 1936. She sounds like a real peach. Yeah. In closing her couture house, Chanel made a definitive statement of her political views. Her dislike of Jews are portly inculculated by her comment years and sharpened by her association with society elites has solidified her beliefs. It's not saying like these people are the reason like she's it, but it's saying like they didn't help it in my mind. Um, but I'm just saying whatever. People have the exact same background that she did and they did not do this. Exactly. Um, she shared with many of her circle of conviction that Jews were a threat to Europe because of the Bolshevik government in the Soviet Union. Always the communist. Yep. Oh yes, now here's where we get into it. So during the German occupation, Chanel resided at the Hotel Ritz. It was a noteworthy place preferred for upper echelon German military staff. Her romantic liaison with a guy named Baron Hans Guther von Dinklage, which... That's another name. Yep. (laughs) <laughs> a German diplomat in Paris and former Prussian army officer and attorney general who had been an operative in military intelligence since 1920 eased her arrangements at the Ritz. So her biographer, Vaughn, establishes that Chanel committed herself to the German cause as early as 1941 and worked for um, like generals and German intelligence agencies in the military intelligence spy network at the Reich Main Security Office in Berlin. At the end of the war, Schellenberg was tried, um, one of the generals that she worked for, Schellenberg was tried by the Nuremberg Milita- Military Tribunal mm-hmm. and sentenced to six years imprisonment for war crimes. He was released in 1951 owing to um, incurable liver disease and took refuge in Italy. Chanel paid for his medical care and living expenses, financially supported his wife and family, and paid for his funeral when he did die like a year later all right so suspicion of coco chanel's involvement first began when german tanks entered paris and began the nazi occupation chanel immediately sought refuge in the deluxe hotel ritz as i've already mentioned a million times when the ritz yep it was at the hotel ritz where she found love with baron hans gunther von dinklage <laughs> we're just gonna call him dinklage right now dinklage. working in the german embassy close to the gestapo when Nazi occupation of France began, Chanel decided to close her store, claiming patriotic motivation, as we know. At the time of the French liberation, 1944, Chanel left in a note in her store window explaining Chanel No. 5 to be free to all GIs. During this time, she fled to Switzerland to avoid criminal charges for her collaborations as a Nazi spy. So this is where we get in also to some shady stuff with uh, people in the high-up government, which we'll talk about soon. 
So in September 1944, Chanel was interrogated by the French, the Free French Purge Committee. The committee had no documented evidence of her collaborative activities and was obliged to release her. According to Chanel's grandniece, Gabrielle Palace Lebrun, when Chanel was returned home, she said, Churchill had freed me, and we will get to that. Okay. Um, the extent of Churchill's intervention for Chanel after the war became a subject of gossip and speculation. Um, some historians claim that people worried that if Chanel were forced to testify about her own activities at trial, she would expose the pro-Nazi sympathies, duh, and activities of certain pro-level British officials, Duh. <laughs> Members of the society elite, duh. And the royal family, duh. So her biographer writes that some claim that Churchill instructed Duff Cooper, a British ambassador, to the French provisional government to protect Chanel. Churchill and Chanel's friendship marked its origin in the 1920s when she was first introduced to all the aristocracy um, with the eruption of her uh, scandalous beginning of falling in love with the Duke of Westminster, who was also an anti-Semite. Churchill's intervention at the end of the war prevented Chanel's punishment by for spy collaborations and ultimately salvaged her legacy. Weird how all of these anti-Semites just uh, happen to know each other. Yeah. And run in the same circles. Yeah. Um, so in 1945, Chanel moved completely, I guess, to Switzerland, where she lived there for several years, part of the time with Dinklage, because he's not in jail. Um, in 1953, she sold her villa, blah, blah, blah. Um, unlike, so now I'm going to go a little bit away from it and just tell you the last little bits. Unlike the pre-war era when women reigned as the premier courtiers, this is where now Christian Dior has achieved success in 1947 with his new look. Um, and he also had all these other male designers, Christian Belencicia, Robert Piguet, and Jackie's fight. I'm like mispronouncing all these things. <laughs> Chanel was convinced that women would ultimately rebel against the aesthetic favored by the male couturiers, what she called illogical design, the waist cinchers, padded bras, heavy skirts, and stiffened jackets. According to Edmund Charles Rome, Chanel had become tyrannical and extremely lonely late in life. In her later years, she was sometimes accompanied by Jackie Chazat and her confidant Lulu Maquand. A faithful friend was also the Brazilian Amy de Heron. I don't know why I'm telling you these names, they're not important, who lived in Paris four months a year at the nearby hotel. Um, they frequently strolled through Central Park, or not Central Park, Central Paris together. Central Paris. Um, so, but then, so 1945, 47. So she died actually on a Sunday, January 10th, in 1971 so many years after World War II, at the Hotel Ritz, where she had resided for more than 30 years at the age of 87. Wow. Um, so I want to end, though, with her biographer, Vaughn, and his book about Chanel and Nazis. So it's just the last little bits. So the Chanel, when his... He didn't intend to find this. He was just doing his research, and then he found it. And so when he first came out, the Chanel group, I'm guessing in the company at this point, stated... What is certain is that she had a relationship with German aristocrat during the war. Clearly, it wasn't the best period to have a love story with a German, even if Baron von Dinklage was English by his mother and she, Chanel, knew him before the war. I don't give a shit. <laughs> um, in an interview given to the Associated Press, author Vaughn discussed the unexpected turn of his research. This, 
I was looking for something else, and I came across this document saying Chanel's a Nazi agent, dot, dot, dot. Then I really started hunting through all of the archives in the United States, in London, in Berlin, and in Rome, and I came across not one, but 20, 30, 40 absolutely solid archival materials on Chanel and her lover, um, Hans Gotthard von Dinklage, who was a professional abhor spy? Abhor spy? Abhor? A-B-W-E-H-R. I didn't have time to look that up. Okay. But the last thing I want to end on, because it's the thing that stuck out to me most, and it's never like felt truer than anything, but Vaughn also addressed the discomfort many felt with the revelations provided in his book. He quotes, A lot of people in this world don't want the iconic figure of Gabrielle Coco Chanel, one of France's greatest cultural idols, destroyed. This is definitely something that a lot of people would have preferred to put aside to forget to just go on selling Chanel scarves and jewelry. And that is absolutely true. Uh, the Abwehr was a German military intelligence service for the Weichswehr and Wehrmacht from 1920 to 1945. Okay. So spy people. Spy people. And that is motherfucking Coco Chanel. So now I'm really curious to see if those movies even hint at that. My gut tells me they touch it for two minutes. Yeah. Like, and show that she has remorse. Like biopics do. Yeah. Yeah. So... I wasn't expecting to go into Nazism, but at this point in like in our state, we're always it's always there. So I wasn't expecting to go into Nazism. <laughs> wait, wait, no, no, that came across. <laughs> it just fell into my lap. <laughs> well, when I read it, I was like, "What?" And then I was like, "Oh, this is just a little bit of her life." And then, but then I just kept going, like, "Oh my god." And, like, that's other sites that talked about her, like, wouldn't really say much. Like, yeah. oh, she fell in love with a German officer during World War II. No, no, no. <laughs> she fell in As love. As a ten-year affair. <laughs> no, it's not. It's a relationship. With that's a relationship. <laughs> Anything over five years is not an affair. <laughs> that's a side relationship. It's a side um, but that is Coco Chanel. <laughs> and now I really want to see the movies made about her and just see how they present it. Her affairs last longer than most television shows. Let's be Yeah, real. she never married. She just had very long relationships <laughs> with men. <laughs> I mean, more power to her. Yeah. I mean, it didn't seem like she cared to marry anyone. No. They didn't really talk about that. I, didn't, I don't know. She seemed like a private person. Seemed like... When she would talk, she would just talk about fashion, and then she was also no, well-known for, like, lashing out other fashion designers. Yeah. Or not, like, all the other ones, but some that she didn't agree with. But I have to say, I don't really agree with her on something, so. Right. <laughs> now I'm really not buying Chanel Number no. 5. <laughs> There's also rumors on, like, how Chanel Number no. 5 came about. Someone's like, oh, that was her lucky number. Someone said that was just the fifth sample, and she really liked it. Yeah. Like, okay, whatever. Well, maybe she liked the fifth sample and then five became her lucky number I think is what it ended up being but but I don't think I've ever worn Chanel or her clothing I have definitely never worn Chanel <laughs> but it's it's like men's clothing for women so. <laughs> I'm a Calvin Klein gal I seriously like all my dresses in my closet are yeah. Calvin Klein I really love like the style is like perfect for me so I hope I I haven't googled him I hope he's okay or like also not a Nazi, then I'll be really upset. I don't think he is, but we can check either. that out. Yeah, we'll look it up next week. <laughs> <laughs> I'm not doing another designer for a while. Breaking news, Calvin Klein is a Nazi uh, sympathizer. <laughs> That's the title of this episode. <laughs> I hope it is. 
I was going to go with I didn't expect to go into Nazism. Okay, yeah, I like that one. <laughs> I do, too. <laughs> um, but yeah, that's Coco Chanel. All right. Um, do you want to get out of here? I, I know I you do. have to work tomorrow. I do. All right. Um, thank you all, thank you all as always. Mm-hmm. Uh, as always, buy my books. You can yes. find links on our website. Uh, that's absentactivismarts.wordpress.com. Um, if you want to become a Patreon, you can become a Patreon at patreon.com. Uh, it's Absinthe Activism Arts. Um, check out Katie's artwork, uh, some of our music. We've got music for, from uh, Chad Osman um, on the website. Uh, also, Joshua Paul Brooks. Check him out. He's part of our collective. Um, you can find us on Facebook at Absinthe Activism Arts. You can find us on Twitter at Absinthe Act Art. Uh, we've never used it, but you can follow One us day. if you want to. <laughs> <laughs> uh, as I mentioned earlier, if you want to see pictures of Mercury, you can find me at AWM Rights on um, Instagram. Uh, please don't send me creepy messages um, about how you want to have my babies. Um, things like that are not okay um please don't do that uh is there anything else no that's a great way to end this episode i believe cool all right um <laughs> until next episode thank you for listening we love you and good night Bye.